0: We just set the machines up. Okay, we're ready to roll. Watch it. Hey, knucklehead. It's time for American Knucklehead, an average Joe's take on the state of the nation. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the American Knucklehead Podcast. I am your host, Crawford Smith, and I thank you for listening. As you may know, this is coming to you from Portland, Oregon, a town which has been working off a lot of karma this year. Now, I'm going to throw in a quick word about life here in Portland. Do not believe what you see and hear in the news. Portland is, as always, a beautiful city and a wonderful place to live. Now, there's no doubt we've had our problems this year, For example, for a week and a half after Labor Day, there was a choking blanket of smoke that gave Portland the unpleasant distinction of having the worst air quality in the world. Of course, the worst stories have been about the violence associated with the Black Lives Matter protests. Certainly, the hard-right Goebbels-esque news outlets will always blow this way out of proportion. But even the so-called mainstream media have not been passing up opportunities for a good, exaggerated scare story about what's going on in Portland. If some anarchy a-hole drags a mattress into the street and lights it on fire, a CNN cameraman rushes in to get like a low shot of the burning mattress with the city skyline in the background, makes it look like the whole town is in flames, and it's not. People are going about their business and living their lives as best they can in this COVID times. There are not gangs of vicious black-masked Antifa people roaming the streets, terrorizing the populace, and making people wipe their ass with the flag before they're allowed to go into the food co-op. It's just not so. The violence associated with the BLM protests are very localized in the Portland space-time continuum, and everybody else goes around and goes about their business. I've actually started writing this podcast a number of times and then something major and majorly depressing has happened in the news and this throws my planned narrative all out of whack and it throws me into a depression which severely undermines my ambition to write and record. The main subject of this podcast is intended to be the Black Lives Matter movement and what's it all about Alfie? The complicated bit is the BLM movement and the protests have been become conflated with so many other contentious issues facing the country today, and particularly here in Portland. So I guess I'll just start with the police. In general, I support the police, and I believe that a large majority of the police officers are doing a very difficult job to the best of their ability under very trying circumstances. For the sake of argument, let's just say that 99% of police officers are dedicated professionals who impartially maintain law and order in a way that benefits their communities. Good on them. But what about that other 1%? Ah, there's the sticky business. Because despite the good work and efforts of the 99% of good cops, that bad 1% can do a hell of a lot of harm. And it's tough to get rid of them, too, due to the strength of police unions and arbitrators that keep corrupt or violent cops on the force, despite the objections of citizens, government, and even other cops. On the flip side of the coin, if you listen to episode 44 of this podcast, you'll know that I had an unpleasant and arguably unfair interaction with the police myself earlier this year. Now, you got to keep in mind that up until 2015, when Oregon legalized recreational marijuana use... I led what was basically, eh, and arguably, an outlaw lifestyle. So up until very recently, I always treated interactions with the police as something to be avoided at all costs because it could result in something quite unpleasant occurring to me. And that's the well-off white boy version of this. I'm sure that what goes on with the average black person in their view of police interaction is considerably more acute. I mean, I figured the worst that would happen to me if Johnny Law caught me with my vice was a trip to the pokey. At no point did I ever concern myself with coming away with an interaction with a cop's stone-cold dead, but that's what happens with a lot of black folks, I think. So on one level, I think I can empathize a little about how most black people relate to the police. On the other hand, as a comfortable, fat, lazy, middle-aged white guy, there's probably no way that this even scratches the surface. I don't know if there's any way I could without actually being black and having experienced what many black people have when they interact with the cops. But there's definitely a problem, friends and neighbors. Even a cursory glance at the statistics will let you know that there's something very wrong. Black people make up about 13.5% of the American population. Now, according to Statistica.com in 2019, black people accounted for nearly 37% of the people shot to death by the police. Okay, get those numbers? About 14% of the population, but 37% of the fatalities at the hand of the police. That's grossly disproportionate. And you'll find this disproportionate statistic trends over arrests, incarceration rates, all sorts of things with the legal system. And this is the reason that so many BLM supporters get irate when people come back at them with a phrase, all lives matter. Now, I didn't understand this at first, so I did a little asking around. And basically, friends and neighbors, by saying black lives matter does not mean that only black lives matter. Certainly not. It does not preclude the obvious concept that all lives matter. However, as the statistics I just pointed out demonstrate, it's not all lives that are being disproportionately ended by the cops. Also, there's been a pretty piss-poor track record in this country of becoming nominally outraged by some sort of racial atrocity, swearing up and down that there will be systemic reform, only to have the drive for that reform wither away once the atrocity fades a little bit in the public memory. It is understandable, then, that protest organizers want to keep the issue focused on black lives because that's where the problem lies. So like I said, there's clearly a problem, but what's to be done? Now, the problem I have is that I haven't heard a whole lot in the way of constructive, workable solutions from either side. Or maybe it's those that have the constructive, workable solutions aren't as much of an attention-grabber as tweeter extremists lobbing Molotov cocktails or woofer thugs waving assault rifles in people's faces. Now, you've undoubtedly heard the slogan, Defund the Police, the latest in a series of many popular but largely meaningless three-word political slogans. Eat my shorts. Yeah, okay, great. As far as three-word slogans go, at least there are multi symbolic words in there. But what does defund the police really mean? Well, that's part of the problem. It's a slogan, not a policy. It sounds good during the protest march, but as far as laying the groundwork for a solution to this problem, it falls a little bit short. For starters, there are some people who really honestly think that the only solution is to absolutely abolish all police forces and prisons. Now, I can see taking an extreme position as the beginning point of a negotiation strategy. If you want 100, you ask for 200 and negotiate down to your real goal over the course of the negotiations. However, there seems to be a lot of people, particularly here in Portland, for who this is the only acceptable answer. Not going to negotiate, get rid of the cops, get rid of prisons. That's all I'm going to talk about. To these people, I say, grow up. It ain't gonna happen. If you're unwilling to recognize that compromise and negotiation are the only ways to meaningful change, you need to pull your head out of your ass and join the grown-up world. And I'd like to make a snide aside to anarchists on both the woofer and tweeter side of the political spectrum. We see the tweeter side and the anarchitties who are throwing fireworks at cops, lighting mattresses on fire in the middle of the streets. On the woofer side, we see it in the gun-toting mouth-breathers who invade state capitals because of the tyrannical regulations involving mask-wearing, or the small-minded nitwits who want to be able to drown the federal government in a bathtub. To all of you anarchist types, I'd like to make this suggestion. Pay a visit to Somalia. Yeah, go ahead, book your next vacation to Mogadishu, and then let everybody know how enjoyable it was living in a place where there's no central government, consistent law enforcement, or regularly functioning infrastructure. Now, getting back to the meaning of everybody's new three-word slogan, what does defund the police really mean? Now, I can see changing up things so that the cops are no longer furnished with military-grade hardware and body armor. They don't need armored personnel carriers. They don't need that scary black Darth Vader armor. Because when your primary tool is a hammer, every problem begins to look like a nail. That is, being a guy, I know that when you're handed toys like that, you're going to go real far out of your ways looking for reasons to bust them out and use them. Now, I think it would be useful to reallocate some of the money currently being used to fund law enforcement put them into funding community mental health services. Hell, I suspect the cops themselves would probably be supportive of this. Ever since we collectively decided that there wasn't enough return on investment in caring for mentally ill Americans, the streets have been flooded with people who really shouldn't be allowed to even operate a telephone without supervision. These people do weird, dangerous stuff, and the cops become involved. But the cops aren't psychiatrists, they're not social workers, and a lot of the times... These encounters between the police and untreated mentally ill wind up being a tragedy. So, less money for military hardware, more money for mental health. Yes, I can get behind that. However, just arbitrarily getting rid of or drastically reducing the police force is not a good idea. We've already seen how this has played out in the Pacific Northwest. First, Portland has already defunded its police. In June, the city voted to cut $16 million from the police budget because of concerns over racial injustice and the use of force. The money was cut from a gun violence reduction team, school resource officers, and the transit police. And it was redirected to social service programs. So that's good as far as it goes. And there are a lot of people wanted these cuts to be considerably larger. However, after the gun violence unit was disbanded at the beginning of July, gun violence in the city started to spike. And personally speaking, as someone who frequently rode public transit before COVID hit, I like the transit police, and I'm not very thrilled that they're gone. There is some freaky shit that happens on those trains and buses, friends and neighbors. And an even more egregious example of what happens when the police disappear occurred in Seattle, also in June. An area of six city blocks in the Capitol Hill neighborhood was declared a police-free area. The so-called Capitol Hill Organized Protest Zone, or CHOP Zone, was essentially abandoned by the police for over three weeks. Essentially, it was mob rule. And we know the type of people who let the mob rule. Tell them, Ronnie. end, this Seattle neighborhood had 23 days of mob rule with predictable results. Sure, the anarchidies had a blast getting to run around and play grown-up, but others didn't have such a good time. Many business owners were harassed and had their places of business vandalized by unchecked gangs of looters. Even businesses not thus affected saw a dramatic drop-off in business as regular folks decided to avoid the anarchy of the chop zone entirely. And there was gun violence. There were four shootings, two of them fatal, and that's what pretty much ended the chop zone and should perhaps serve as a cautionary tale about what happens to a community when law enforcement is drastically reduced. So maybe we should be talking more about reforming the police rather than defunding the police. Now, friends and neighbors, I never thought that I would be publicly shilling for the cops, but here we are there certainly have been a hell of a lot of changes in the last 10 years. Not all of them good, but not all of them bad either. Although the last four years have sucked pretty hard, I gotta say. There's certainly a lot more I can say about the police and the black community's relationship with them. I recall a quote from Jesse Jackson regarding the police, saying in effect that the police are the gatekeepers of wealth and privilege, and that to really affect lasting change in social justice, We need to look past the gatekeepers and start paying more attention to what's going on behind that gate. I wish I could find the original quote because it was a lot more eloquent, but Jesse Jackson says a lot of quotable things, and it's kind of hard to find something, especially when it's like 15 years old like this one. But regardless of its provenance, the sentiment behind it remains relevant, especially today. What is going on behind that gate, friends and neighbors? I sure don't know, although I can suss out a few things just by observing the shadows on the cave wall. Certainly the wealth gap between the tiny percentage of the ultra-rich and the rest of us has increased. Along with that, we see a lot of other related knock-on effects. Crumbling infrastructure, a dysfunctional health care system, substandard public education, eroded trust in our government, and democratic ideals. This laundry list of grievances, I believe, has a lot to do with the protests that sprung up following George Floyd's murder and their longevity. This toxic brew of social and institutional degeneration has been going on for a long, long time. Frustration underlying these problems has been adding fuel to the cylinder for decades. The fear and uncertainty engendered by the COVID-19 outbreak and lockdowns increased the pressure on that fuel mix, And the horrifying images of George Floyd's murder provided the spark that started the combustion. At this point, it's understandable that BLM organizers are frustrated that the focus has been pulled from the issue of police violence inflicted on black citizens. I'm pretty sure, though, that there's a lot more anger and frustration fueling the current state of discontent in this country. The murder of George Floyd and the BLM protests that followed are just the thin end of the wedge. What's following the thin of that wedge is too much for me to cram into this overly long podcast, that's for sure. However, friends and neighbors, I've been ranting about these issues since I started this podcast nearly a decade ago. All of the problems I've spoken of have not been addressed in any meaningful way by our government. This is hardly surprising as doing so would be politically and or financially inconvenient to the politicians and the big money donors who bankroll their campaigns. Uh, speaking of campaigns, I was going to try to get out a dedicated episode for the 2020 election. It's clear that that's not going to happen, so I'm going shoe something, to shoehorn something in right now. Friends and neighbors, when I started this podcast back in 2011, my main thesis come metaphor was that the United States of America is like a house that has been neglected and is critically run down. In order to fix it, we'd have to tear some of the parts of the house right down to the studs and start rebuilding from there. Now, I still think this is true, but right now our House is on fire. Donald Trump and those that support him are knowingly or unknowingly inflicting huge amounts of serious damage on this country. Before we can make any serious improvements, we've got to put out the fire. Therefore, I am offering up the very first serious American knucklehead presidential endorsement. Vote for Joe Biden. Trump has unsurprisingly proven to be a terrible president, a terrible American, and a terrible human being. The fact that he continues to garner such support as he has indicates to me that a huge section of the electorate is so angry and frustrated with the lack of progress for the average American knucklehead that they're going to support the notion of change even if that change is egregiously destructive and counterproductive. Honestly, I don't think Biden is really going to be an agent of change that this country needs. However, he is galaxies better than the half-bright, hateful homunculus who currently resides in the White House. Vote for Biden, put out the Trump dumpster fire, and then we can see about making the change that America really needs. That's all I have for now, friends and neighbors. It simultaneously seems like too much and not enough. Hang on tight for the next few weeks and months. It's going to be interesting but in the meantime y'all be good to each other out there never lose sight of the fact that now more than ever we're in this together